thing as the Israelites failing and us thinking we're better. Okay. Um, we we all like to say that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't sin, Adam did. Okay. But we would have sinned too. Okay, I think that's a pretty interesting concept. So we we might be we might say that it was unfair for us to be guilty because of Adam's sin. But if we were in the same situation, what do you think would have happened? Right? Okay? How else would you, and that's a great answer to that objection. How else might you answer that objection that uh, it wasn't fair that uh, we're guilty for Adam's sin? It's not fair that we're guilty for Adam's sin. How, how else must you answer that objection? Well, here's a couple, couple of them. One, um, the person who protest this is not, who protest this is not without sin himself, right? God will render to each person according to his deeds. Right, so everybody who makes that objection, they have sinned, right? A lot. I mean, how often do you think the average person sins a day? What do you guys think? Okay, how many think it's single digits? Double digits? Triple digits? We got a triple over there, quadru- quadruple digits. Okay, what's after quadruple? Quintuple digits. (laughs) (laughs) That also works. Right? So, I mean, there is a sense where, I mean, we sin a lot, right? It's uh, it's instinctive to humanity. And so, and the other thing is, if we think it's uh, unfair for us to be represented by Adam, then it would also be unfair for us to be represented by Christ, right? Yeah, the whole substitute element. So how does this doctrine of like inherited sin explain the necessity of the virgin birth? What do you think, Heather? If he was, the virgin birth, he didn't inherit sin from his father. Yeah. So if God was his father, mm-hmm. he didn't inherit the sin nature Yeah. that he would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the normal pattern of birth leads to passing sin on from one generation to another. So with Jesus, the, the virgin birth is, is essential because it prevented that reality from happening. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's why the virgin birth is, one, is taught scripturally, but it's a necessary doctrine in light of this. Okay, now let's get to the really fun topic for today. Uh, total depravity, all right? All kinds of excitement. All right, Genesis, uh, here's some uh, passages to prove it. So we'll start with Genesis 6, 5. And Tara, do you want to read that for me? Sure. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, what does that passage say about humans? You're awesome. You are awesome. Every thought and intent was you. Okay, Leo, can you get uh, uh, Jeremiah 17.9? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who, who can understand it? Okay. <coughs> Again, very low view of humanity there. Okay. Abe, 
I'm going to have you read Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. <laughs> Destruction and misery are in their paths. Half the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay. Pretty comprehensive. How about Ephesians 2 1? Jason, go ahead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay. So, you get into, I mean, what's the general assessment of humanity according to all those passages? Leo, what do you think? We're sinners, and we don't deserve the grace that God's given us. Yeah. So, does this mean that all humans are equally bad, or as bad as they could be? Why is that? Does it mean that all humans are as bad as they can be? What do you think, Tara? No, it also depends on the standard you're holding them against. Because, uh-huh. like, if you're just doing a worldly standard, like, some people do really good things for other people, and other people mm-hmm. are murderers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But to the standard of the holiness of God, we yeah, fall completely short. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction. This is all relative to to God. So, can can humans <coughs> do something good? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what would be some examples of maybe good things that non-Christians have done? Not killing your children. Not killing your children. Right? <laughs> <coughs> Helping uh, those in need. Helping those in need. Yeah. Yeah? Other ways that humans can do good? <coughs> Yeah. Children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there there's a doctrine. Depravity needs to be balanced with the doctrine of um, of common grace. You know, we the Bible teaches that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? That same rain that blesses us blesses other people as well. And so there's a sense where um, God can even use other people as sources of common grace. Does that make sense? Like police officers who make the city safe. They may not be believers, right? But we benefit from you know, their service to us. And so depravity doesn't mean depravity. It does not mean that everybody is as bad as they can possibly be. Now, people are capable of doing all kinds of bad things. Right? You know, there is no sin outside of the imagination or volition of a human being. But what depravity means is that um, that sin touches every area of our lives. Right? Where even some of the good things that we do, right, are stained by sin. So, um, 
you know, one example would be if you were to walk an old lady across the street, what might be some ways sin might touch that act? I'm better than the person who didn't do it. They didn't walk that old lady across the street, right? What are some other ways that that sin can touch that act? They hope other people recognize what they're doing. Yeah. That's right. You know, guys going on a date with his girlfriend, watch this baby. You know? <laughs> other ways? Impatience. Okay. Come on now. We don't have all day. Right? Or maybe the lady just got out of a Mercedes. No, I'll walk you across. Do you know what I'm saying? So so that's what it means. It's like even when we do good things, um, and even if we let's say had a virtuous motivation. Would that ever cause God to give us credit to say, all right, you know, that is the good work. You see, a lot of times we have this idea that, you know, the good works outweigh the bad works, right? This is kind of like with Islam, then you get into heaven. But the idea is no good works are truly pleasing and acceptable and meritorious in God's sight. So that's the doctrine of total depravity. I, yeah. I think it's important that we remember that man's defining characteristic is not sin. Mm-hmm. Man's defining characteristic is image bearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we are the pinnacle and the most beautiful thing God created. Mm-hmm. The high point above the angels. Yeah. Yes, stained and twisted by sin now, but that sin cannot overcome our design and so mm-hmm. it leaks out. Yeah. It leaks out sometimes in spite of us where you have a horrible person who gives birth and has this immense love for a child. Mm -hmm. And that's only explainable because that woman is still an image bearer of God even though she's tried to deny it in every way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's, it's very hope giving because you can still look at, you Mm -hmm. know, some of the most wretched cultures and they still come up with things like Doctors Without Borders, Mm -hmm. you know, that go and do good for the poor with very little recompense. Yeah. Yeah. It's because God's image is in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but how is this view of humanity at odds with secular views of man? How is this view at odds with the secular conception of man? What do you think? And essentially good. Mm-hmm. It's corrupted. By yeah. culture or circumstances? Or yeah, by culture and circumstances, yeah. right? But people create culture. But people create culture. <coughs> yeah, we're reading this really interesting book called Strange New World in our college ministry. And we just talked about, you know, the romantics who kind of have this view that if you got close to nature, you'd almost be purified, where, where it's society and education and our culture that corrupts people. So when you leave all of that, that's a way of like the corruption almost leaving, right? So a lot of times we might have this idea of these indigenous people in Irian Jaya or the deep heart of the Amazon. They're actually good and virtuous people, right? And that's kind of a popular stereotype. But if you understand those cultures, I read this one, uh, missionary biography called Lords of the Earth and it opens up and talks about just their culture and there's a story of this four-year-old girl who accidentally trespasses on like the sacred space that is for men only and therefore her father has to throw her into the river 
right? And that type of child sacrifice and stuff like that, I mean, those people are not innocent at all. I mean, for some, murder is just part of life. And the reason why they have that is not because they're corrupted by culture, right? Uh, if anything, society restrains sin. <laughs> and education restrains the full expression of it. And so, and that's an example of, let's say, common grace, where I think uh, being thankful for some of the institutions that we have. And I'd even say being thankful for our country. Um, those are, are things that the Lord allows us to have so that we can still be fruitful and multiply even though we've been stained by by sin. Okay? Any other thoughts on depravity? The philosopher Hobbes said that humanity was <coughs> bad and that there was nothing to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so he had this fatalistic view. I mean, he came, I don't remember yeah. which war he, he experienced, but he experienced a war. Uh-huh. And so he was one of the people who was saying, okay, no, people are intrinsically bad, which kind of aligns with Christianity, yeah. except he said, all humans are bad, and uh-huh. there's nothing we can do to fix it. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, that it's, it's yeah. the hopeless side of Christianity. Yeah, like you look at, like, Buddhism. I mean, the central tenet of Buddhism is life is suffering. Life is suffering. I mean, if you just have an objective look at the world, you see that there is suffering, there's torment, there's people being evil towards one another. Uh, to deny that, I think you're just hopefully na- hopelessly naive. I mean, to think that we can maybe even evolve past that is just not going to happen, right? So the doctrine of sin, I think it's, um, I think it's very political too. Where I think there is this idea that if people just get along and they have the right education, we can do wonderful, marvelous things <coughs> with each other. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So there's this, this trust in other people, um, trust in the government, per se. Whereas, let's say, more of a conservative mentality would be um, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Does that make sense? When they wanted to, Israel wanted a king, Samuel warns them, if you get a king, he's going to take your, your daughters as his servants, he'll take your land, don't say take the, you know, there's just this understanding that the way the world works is that we're all sinful, and therefore, let's say, um, same diplomacy understands that everybody operates in their own self-interest, right? So there's almost a predictability of, of selfishness, right? Even capitalism, right, is built on what premise? People operate in their own self-interest, right? So a Christian view of the world just understands that's just the way humanity is, okay? And the new humanity, you know, who've been changed by the Holy Spirit, we can actually act differently and be different and distinct, right? And that's all the hope that we have. But when we just look at how the world works, it's People operate in their own self-interest. People, in their natural bent, uh, do what's right in their own eyes. Okay, so again, kind of a depressing topic. We're going to get into salvation and all that stuff later on. <laughs> but yeah, this is just a realistic view of humanity. I think too, you mentioned at the end that <clears throat> phrase that shows up in Proverbs and Old Testament a lot. That they're doing what's everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Yeah, like people aren't intentionally. Um, most of the sin that's committed, people are telling themselves that yeah. it's, it's what's right. And so there's this 
<coughs> to where it's not like, oh, okay, I'm going to do something evil now. Uh, there's this belief that what is sin is actually yeah. So there's just a lot of, that's one of the main reasons why depravity is so rejected is because mm-hmm. we tell ourselves over and over and over again that what we're doing is right, this is the right mm-hmm. thing, we're a good person, and so all that crumbles yeah. away. Then David's lineage went off the rails, and God, I think it was Jeroboam, like, was it Jeroboam? I think God set up Jeroboam as, like, an alternative for Israel, Mm -hmm. and he made Jeroboam, like, a promise, like, if you honor me, I will give you the same deal I gave to David, and Jeroboam just goes off the rails immediately as well, Mm -hmm. and for, in his eyes, it was because oh, all of my people are going to Judah to worship. I'll set up my own temple here. Mm-hmm. And it was right in his eyes because he was trying yeah. to like keep his kingdom together. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, even God offering alternatives, you know, mm-hmm. offering the same promise yeah. of salvation, Jeroboam still, like, yeah. completely messed up. Like, I look like a narcissist. There's a perfect overlap between God's will and their will. I mean, it's amazing how it never deviates. Everything I want, he wants. Everything I want, he wants. Um, you know, same thing with people maybe doing things like cheating other people for the sake of their family or for the sake of their tribe, right? So there's all kinds of ways that people justify sin. We're experts in it, okay? So I wanted to kind of close out this topic with another um, question. Are there different degrees of sin? Are there different degrees of sin? Are some sins worse than others? So how might people say no to that. All sin is is equal. How might somebody argue that <coughs> point of view? Yeah, Carson? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, right? I think there's James 2.10. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're guilty of one point, you're guilty of all. Yeah, if you break one law, you pretty much broke the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Alright, any other thoughts on um, why it's all the same. <clears throat> One sin is not worse than the other. <coughs> yeah? I think, like, if you're trying to explain that to a non-believer and you use our court system, mm-hmm. you know, somebody could, two people could be in there for mm-hmm. running a traffic light. Yeah. Well, they both broke the law. Mm-hmm. One might have been at a higher speed, which caused more damage. Yeah. And the other one might not have been, but they okay. both broke the law. Okay. And so, like, there, there, some sins have more consequences. We see the effect of them yeah. longer term. Yeah. But they're still breaking the law. They're still breaking so, the law. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, you, know, you break the law, you break the law. That'd be one argument. And then the consequence of sin seems to be death, right? Eternal death. So it's all the same consequence. So how could it be different degrees of sin? And I think as we kind of work through this, I think this is really helpful to just kind of understand some of the logic of how and why God opposes it. So there's five critical questions. Number one, how does sin affect our legal standing before God? Two, uh, is there a difference between eternal punishment and infinite punishment? Does a different punishment correspond to a different degree of sin? What would differentiate the punishment? And five, how can there be a worse hell if God does not withhold his wrath and offers no common grace to all those who are in hell? So, number one, how does sin affect our legal standing before God? Um, 
So the first one, according to Genesis 2.17, what does one act of disobedience merit? Somebody know what I'm talking about? Want to just answer that question? You will surely die. So one act of disobedience merits death. Now, <coughs> Eric, I'm going to have you turn to James 2, 10 through 11, okay? Okay. Now, according to James 2, 10 through 11, why does breaking one law make someone guilty of all of it? Okay, do you have that? Oh, yeah, I got it. Just Read it out loud, yeah. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, so what's the logic there, right? Why does breaking the one law make someone guilty of all of it? Because God's righteousness is um, flawless. Okay, God's righteousness is flawless. against it, so it's either binary, yes or no. Okay. Anything else? I was breaking one law, make you guilty of all of it. Cole? Well, I think at the root of it, uh, you're separating yourself from God, no matter yeah. what sin it is. So uh-huh. that's really what you're guilty of. Yeah. Depend- it, now, which avenue you go from there, it doesn't, you know, Yeah. at the end of the day, it's just you're separating yourself from God. Yeah. All of it, at its core, is defiance from God. So what makes sin especially wrong is the displacement of God. So whether it's you know, something seemingly harmless like coveting or murder, it's still a defiance, right? It's still the middle finger towards God. It's like saying that all of God's law is like one huge window, yeah. and either the window is broken or it isn't. Yeah. No matter where you broke it or how many times, either it's broken or it isn't. Yeah. Okay. Now, what, are the, what does breaking the law do to our legal standing before God, and what are the consequences? All guilty. All guilty, right? Well, you just send us that. So, any, you commit one sin, you've rebelled against God, and that wages death. So, legally, before God, all of us deserve what? Death. Death, right? So, is there, so that's the first one, right? All sin impacts our legal standing before God. We are all judged as guilty. Second question is there a difference between eternal punishment and infinite punishment? So, what do you think? Is there a difference between eternal and infinite? What do you think? Like you're asking it, I'd say yes, but don't ask. Okay. Me okay. <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> yes. Do you want to take a stab at the difference between eternal and infinite? I see right here. Uh, yes. Well, Eric's going to try answering it without looking at the like length of time versus scale. Degree. Okay. Yeah. Right. So when you kind of look at it. Uh, I actually have it on a different page, but I formatted it wrong. So the answer was right in front of you. There you go. <laughs> so eternal is without end, existing outside of time, continuing without interruption, perpetual, versus infinite is having no boundaries uh, or limits, immeasurably great or large, boundless. So what punishment? So I'm going to get Revelation 14, 11. Liana, you want to read that for me? So the question is, what punishment is promised to those who transgress the laws of God. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Okay. 
So what's the punishment that's promised to sinners? Casey, look at here. Uh, uh, infinite torment. Yeah, there. Well, it goes, what was mentioned in Latin is like infinite, but eternal, right? Eternal, the idea of yeah. day and night. Mm-hmm. He has torment for, for day and night. So how can something be eternal but not infinite? Human body, even, even spiritually, can only take so much pain. Yeah. There's there are limits to how much we can suffer. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of, I mean, there is a sense where something can be eternal, but not to the highest maximum degree. Okay. So now we get into does a different punishment correspond to a different degree of sin? And and let's all turn to Luke twelve. 47 through 48. So, context, Jesus discusses the need for readiness regarding the return of the Son of Man through the parable of the expectant servant. When Peter asks to whom this parable applies, Christ does not respond directly, but uses a parable whose central point applies to all with the knowledge of the return of the Son of Man. So, 47 through 48. Lynette, you want to read that? And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, and whom much will be required, and for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay. So how does the master deal with each of the servants and on what basis? What do you think, Andy? Uh, it depends on what he was given. Okay. So, who was given much, they got much punishment if they didn't do anything with it. Or if they got less, they got less punishment. Yeah. So, and and what was kind of language here? The servant who yeah. knew yeah. his master's will and did, did not, not do it, it, right? So, what general principle does Jesus give to explain the actions of the master? Accountability for what mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, too much is given, much is required. Now, based off of Jesus' logic, does a different punishment correspond to a different degree of sin? Why or why not? Yes and no. They'll both have blows. Yeah. But one will receive more and one will receive less. Yeah. Okay, so there is a difference. So, like, hold on to that thought, okay? This is very critical for understanding this. Let's go to uh, Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Nathan, can you read this one, Matthew 11, 20 through 24? Then, he, uh, then began he to upgrade the cities where most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And for thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, thou shalt be brought down to hell. 
For if the, the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Okay. So which of these does Jesus rebuke and why? One for his most mighty works. Yeah. Most of his mighty works have been done because they did not yeah. Now what differentiates the cities, you know, Capernaum and Poseidon from Tyre and Sidon? What's the difference between those two groups of cities? Is it the Jewish population? Well, the Jewish population, right? So one, one is Jewish, right, part of God's people, and then one, they're outsiders. And not only that, but one was privileged to host the miracles of Jesus Christ, and the other ones did not, right? And how will the judgment contrast between those two cities? Verse 24, what does it say? It will be more what? More tolerable, okay? So um, we'll go ahead and kind of skip. The numbers passage basically talks about kind of first degree versus second degree. People who sin intentionally versus unintentionally. Okay, so we're kind of, um, you know, seeing the basic principle, too much is given, much is required, right? So what would differentiate the punishments, okay? So this is section D, little i. How would the citizens of Chorazin, Poseidon, and Capernaum compare themselves with those of Tyre, Sidon, and especially Sodom? Way superior. Way superior on the basis of what? The law. Law. Birth. Birth. Right. God's chosen people. They would see themselves as less evil. I mean, Sodom is like you know, Las Vegas. Uh huh. So why do the Galileans deserve greater punishment than the pagans? Because they saw and mm -hmm. like, didn't repent. They had all the evidence they could possibly dream up, and they're like, mm -hmm. nah. Yeah, so with more knowledge yeah. comes more responsibility, right? And so this line of reasoning really kind of fits into the unintentional <coughs> versus intentional sense of numbers, as well as the master who beat the servant, the one who knew his father's will gets a greater beating, right? And then you look at, let's say, Caiaphas, right? You guys know Caiaphas, uh, John 19.11, somebody want to get that? Makes me think, I guess, before you know, like, like you mentioned, you know, Sodom was like Las Vegas. So, like, a person there that maybe has never been church, never heard, you know, very little exposure to the gospel compared to someone that lives in Emporia, goes to our church, you know, mm -hmm. both, if both reject, <coughs> who's going to get the greater punishment? Yeah. Right? So, there's a, there's a much greater responsibility and mm -hmm. When you're in a, around a church, in a church, I've, I've talked to our kids, you, if you grow up hearing the gospel, knowing the truth, day after day, and you reject, yeah. you have a much, much greater accountability before God. It's yeah. a much more evil rebellion to fully know the truth and turn around. The more fully you see that light and, and reject that, it's a huge responsibility. And so it's something just to just take into account to your own soul, people that mm. are friends, your family, to realize that 
if you're in a community or a church where you're hearing the gospel, yeah. your, um, your, your accountability is just as seen as passages. It's like yeah. you're in that time with Jesus, seeing the miracles. Mm-hmm. And if you're not repenting, the, the accountability yeah. is, is huge. Because so you can't, you can't look at the people in Vegas and say, you know, yeah. like the, they, they saw Sodom. Yeah, that was good. Look, somebody have the 1911? Go ahead, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Yeah, and that would be who? That would either be Cephas or Judas. Yeah, either Caiaphas or Judas. Either way, it was a Jew, right? Who should have known better. Right. He has the greater sin. Do you guys see the logic? Um, remember that in Matthew chapter 12, they talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus is casting out demons. And remember what the Jews said? They said the reason why you're able to cast out demons, Jesus, is because you have access to a greater demon who cast out the lesser demons. And Jesus calls that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because who... Who was actually doing the work? It was the Holy Spirit. And yet, they saw the miracles. So they don't deny the miracles. But they say that they're satanically inspired instead of something wrought by the Holy Spirit. Right? So that's actually the greater sin. Okay? And then he gets into what would differentiate the, uh, the punishment. And I want to take some time. Scott, you kind of brought up the implication for apostasy in the church. They're huge. So that's why I'm kind of um, pushing through this. Um, well, you know, how can there be a worse hell if God does not withhold his wrath and offers no common grace to any who are there? Right? And this is where I have a couple quotes. You know, one is from a, a theologian. The principle here seems to be the greater our knowledge, the greater is our responsibility, and the greater will be our punishment if we fail in our responsibility. It may well be that the different degrees of punishment in hell are not so much a matter of objective circumstances as of subjective awareness of the pain of separation from God. <coughs> the misery one will experience from having no, uh, having to live with one's wicked self eternally will be proportionate to one's degree of awareness precisely what one was doing when choosing evil. So have any of you guys studied Dante's Inferno? Where it kind of goes down to the lowest level of hell? Who is in the absolute lowest level of hell? Yeah, it's Judas. So you can argue with some of the other points theologically in that work, but isn't it interesting that Judas is in the absolute lowest level of hell? Why why do you think Dante put him there? First hand witness with the word Jesus went, saw it all, knew it all, directly learned. From Jesus himself. Yeah. Was doing the miracles. Was doing the miracles. Yeah. Was doing the miracles. And he ended up betraying Jesus. Right? Yeah. So this is the thing. Too much is given, much is required. Right? So who who will have the worst experience in hell? In this community of Emporia, <clears throat> who will have the worst experience in hell? Christian, Christians who reject his word. Yeah. Pastors. 
faster. For real. Apostates who lead the faith. Apostates who lead the faith, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, you know, when you have a man who taught the word, went to seminary, does all that stuff, and then walks away from the faith, that experience in, in hell for that person will be worse than anything else. Theoretically worse than Hitler, which says something, right? Because the standard is not the evil that you commit, but too much is given, much is required. Those who should know better, but don't act on it. So I think that's kind of a, you know, it's a, you know, we have youth ministry, we have young people who grew up in the faith, raised in a Christian home, you know, taught in a good, solid, Bible-believing church. When they walk away, from that, I mean, what's going to await them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Malachi? I have a question. So there's, the Bible says there's some sins, God hates all sin, mm -hmm. but there's some sins that God directly despises, like like that God loathes. Somehow, like somehow also categorizing those above. Mm -hmm. Does that does that play in at all? Is that um, Well, like I mean, sometimes people in the Old Testament talk about one's an abomination, one's not. But I think in the New Testament, the direct teaching of Jesus is too much is given, much is required. Those who know more and reject it will have a greater degree of punishment. So the, the idea is, like, you can do the same crime. Like, murder is still the taking of a human life, right? The legal taking of a human life. But what's the difference between first and second degree murder? Intent. Intent, right? Premeditated. It's what's going on in your heart. And that's ultimately what God judges, right? When somebody rejects him when they should know better, uh, it'll be a very different experience than from somebody who never even had, a, let's say, a chance to reject him. Well, because, I mean, like, Judas's sin is so great because he knew Jesus personally. And the, you know, believer growing up in a church, a pastor, whatever, he knows God. He knows the one he's rejecting. It's a very personal rejection of God. Mm -hmm. So it's not that, the you know, does, does he commit adultery later? Does he whatever? Like, those things matter. God yeah. hates those things. But he hates most the direct personal rejection of himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I often, you know, just pray that the Lord takes my life before I do anything like that. But, but that's the thing. I mean, especially I'm going to look at you young people, right? That's why you coming to church, getting involved in college ministry, wherever you go is critical. Because too much is given, much is required, right? You, you kind of cross the Rubicon, <coughs> there's no... No turning back. Once you know, right? you know. And then when you go into full-time ministry, right, that's another Rubicon where there's no turning back. Like, to walk away from the faith of this part for me, right, no, and all that I've done, I mean, that is, like, super-duper sobering. And I've had pastor friends who deny the faith now, deny the faith. And I look at this passage, I'm like, oh, man. So Charles Spurgeon... Oh, this is, in my opinion, one of his finest sermons. It's called Almost Persuaded. And it's when Agrippa, you know, Paul's giving his testimony before Agrippa, and he's trying to call Agrippa to make a, a decision. And Agrippa says, you know, are you really going to talk me into this? And he brings up this idea of being almost persuaded. Like the person who is almost persuaded to follow Christ and then decides not to. This is what he says. Once more... To have been almost persuaded and yet not be a Christian will lead to endless regrets. For will not this thought bubble up 
in the seething soul amidst its torments forever. I was almost persuaded to repent. Why did I go on in my sin? I was almost persuaded to put my trust in Jesus. Wherefore did I cling to my self-righteousness and vain ceremonies? I was almost persuaded to forsake my evil companions and to become a servant of God. But now I am cast away forever where no more persuasions can melt my heart. Right? So the person who's almost persuaded, almost there. Like rocky soil Christians, right? Those who embrace it for a while and fall away. Um, I mean, all that stuff is terrifying, right? Now, the greater hope that we have, and we're going to go into the Holy Spirit next week, is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, God will carry on out the work that he began you to completion, right? You know, you, you, will, you will finish, you will get there, but uh, I think part of this doctrine is basically meant to, to scare you into obedience. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think also there's a certain amount of Again, just like daily looking to him and trusting him because, like you said, when you've seen two things, when you've seen someone that's seemingly beyond, you know, salvation and they repent versus when you've seen someone that's seemingly faithful for years and then they go apostate, there's just a certain mystery or depth to the heart that, like, yeah. you know, the wheat and the tear, I mean, for, for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, we may not be able to tell. There's some... Yeah. I think there's just kind of a, based on how you treat scripture, it could be looked at as sort of a manipulation tool to use fear to get you to do something until you realize it's trying to give you an accurate depiction of what will happen Mm -hmm. if you go down that road. And Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like you can use it as a guide or, you know, always kind of have sarcastic view of why it's being yeah. there. Like when people say, well, you're just using fear to control people. Right. That, uh, that presupposes that what is being presented to be afraid of is not true. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. But if it is true, you're not using fear to control people. You're warning people mm-hmm. of imminent judgment, and this is what will happen to you. Right. I mean, why do you think they show blood on the highway to a bunch of, you know, driver's <laughs> ed students? They're using fear to try and control they're, 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 you're just using fear to control me. You know, all those you know, videos about drinking and driving, and you know, I, I know there's one very powerful one where a kid is you know, being pushed on the swing, and then underneath, you know, was killed by a drunk driver like two weeks later, right? That's using fear to control people. Well, it's awakening. I mean, fear creates a response, right? Yes. To fight or, or flee. And, um, and the Bible, like people say, Jesus never talked about hell. <laughs> We know more about hell from Jesus than any other source. <laughs> that is the truth. You know, and he, he, you know, people have this idea of the hippie Jesus, you know, always love welcoming people. He talks about the narrow road, the broad path that leads to destruction, and the way the truth is. I mean, he was very much warning people of the wrath to come. And, uh, and when we see him in Revelation, he's bringing the wrath with him. Right, and only those who trust in him, follow him, and serve him here on earth will will receive that pardon. Right, and those who pretended to be Christians and walked away, I mean, that's a that's a special betrayal. So, so I know this was kind of uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, you know what? 
I, I kind of talking to some of the college students. You remember this. You know, the decisions you make when you enter college in that first month are determinative for where you're going to go for the rest of your life. And anytime you're kind of facing a decision, you have to decide to pursue it, to do it, to build your life around it, and to be a part of a community that helps you to grow. So, well, let me pray, then I'll, I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, we come before you um, kind of humbled by this reality of sin, and we see it in all of us, and we're scared of it. We, we pray that you will um, just cleanse us of these defilements and these sins. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the reality that when we put our trust in you, we can get a pardon, but also uh, a new heart, one that can be inclined to do good, to honor you, and to worship you. And I pray that you'll protect the faith of everyone here, that they will just see these warning passages, um, very, take them very seriously, and that they will... You know, just make that commitment, that resolution to follow you for a lifetime. In Christ's name.